Father, would you uh, honor yourself and would you do what you love to do this morning? Would you uh, highlight your son, the Lord Jesus, in a way that makes him more dear to us, more near to us? Would you help us to love him? And, And Lord, after spending some time in your word, would you help us to declare his excellencies with uh, wide open hearts and full open voices. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the midst of the Christmas season, and I'm fully aware of that. And so, you know, it's prudent to preach to the subject that might be on people's minds. You know, if they're already thinking about something, you speak to that, that's prudent. And we're going to get, excuse me, excuse me, We're going to get to the Christmas narrative message this morning, but it will be the long way around the block to do that. We're going to be back in the On the Road series in which we metaphorically join Jesus. You remember the afternoon of His resurrection and He met a couple of friends, disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the text says that He showed them Himself from Moses. Going back to the Old Testament, He pointed out to them that at one level they shouldn't have been surprised at what had happened to him because God had said this would happen in the Old Testament. So we've been spending some weeks in Genesis just looking at people, promises, and events that we understand now, post-incarnation and resurrection, we were meant to see Jesus through. So we're going to be in Genesis 18 this morning to do that. And let me front load just a little bit on this. There's a little bit of theology in this. And we're going to focus on Jesus. That's the whole thing with the uh, 12-message series, all in Genesis. I've realized, uh, even in preparing for this morning, that some Sundays you'd love to come in and you'd love to just say something that feels good. It's the holiday season, and we all go away with a warm glow. Isn't that nice? We went to church and we go away with the warm glow, the warm, happy glow. And that would be great. I have no problem with that. And by the way, I love the Christmas season. If you're talking good food and fellowship and worship, I'm all in. I have no problem with the Christmas season either. If we talked just about God, either as the Trinity, or if we talked about Jesus, take away the word Jesus, and talk about God the Son, we could talk about the attributes of God, We could talk about His communicable and incommunicable qualities. And that would be great. That would be theology proper. That would be great. The thing is this, though. Once you talk specifically about Jesus, you're now talking about the incarnation. Jesus didn't exist as Jesus from eternity past. He wasn't Jesus. He was God the Son. God the Son takes on our humanity and takes the name Jesus which is significant, and we'll talk about that. But this is the point. Once you're talking about God the Son as Jesus, you have to ask, why the incarnation? Why did God the Son put on our flesh, become one of us? Now you're saying Jesus came, thinking of verses from the Gospels, the Son of Man didn't come to serve, but to didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life ransom for many. See, this is the thing. There's a person, the second person of the Trinity becomes Jesus because we have to be saved. That means there's something to be saved from. 
Which is all to say, if you're talking about Jesus, it's hard not to talk about why He came and what His work is. So with that on the front end, this will, we will get into a Christmas message, but it's the long way around the block. And it's not just the feel good, the baby in the manger, okay? So we're in Genesis 18. And if you've got a Bible open up there, the first 15 verses is where we'll start. In chapter 17, just for context, God had showed up to Abraham and Sarah and He said, among other things, He instituted the covenant of circumcision with them. But He also told Abraham at that point, He said, Sarah, your wife is going to have a son. And you're to name him Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. And in that text, Abraham shows a little incredulity because he laughs in his heart. And he says, he's not sure how God's going to pull this off. So he says, God, please bless Ishmael. You know, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, he's already here. He's a sure thing. Lord, if you want to look for someone to bless, Ishmael's a good target here. God says, well, okay, I'll bless Ishmael, but... It's Isaac that my special covenant promises are going to go through. Well, chapter 18, this is probably just weeks, days, months later. It's very shortly after chapter 17, God appearing. Here in chapter 18, it's another visit. It's a divine guest, a divine visitor to Abraham and Sarah's tent. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please don't pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I'll bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Now on another day we could go through this text. Isn't Abraham a great example of serving with excellence? This text is just so great about his humble service and his hospitality. I mean, this, this, this passage screams these things. Great study for another day. So they say, Abraham sounds good, go ahead. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. You can see this meal, this isn't McDonald's. This is not the drive through We're slaughtering a calf. We're skinning the calf. We're putting it over a, a fire. This has taken a while. And by the way, fine measures, uh, three measures of fine flour. Guys, this would, be, this would be heaping stacks of bread, okay? This is a little cow. And this is heaping stacks of bread. So Abraham is bringing out absolutely his best. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. He's just waiting on them. Then they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? He said, there in the tent. He said, he said, goes back to verse 1, this is the Lord. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I, I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also, is this really possible that I would have a son? 
The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Pushed in the corner, Sarah, No, not me. That's not what happened. Thinking theologically for just a minute, this this story is what we call a theophany. This is a theophany. And that, that word just comes from two Greek words, which means God shows up. Or God comes in a way that He can be seen. Now we know, when it says the Lord in here, and sometimes I don't like the way we translate, it says Lord. Probably in your Bible it says Lord. But it's all capital letters. And so if you don't note that, you miss the key point. That this is, this is not some mere Lord, L, capital L, small O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the Creator God of the universe. This is the Most High God of Abraham's visit with Melchizedek. This is the God later who will come down on Sinai and smoke fire, thunder, and earthquake. This is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And the use of this word ten times in this chapter leaves no doubt this is Yahweh who has shown up. But isn't this interesting? He is so human in this. This is not the Incarnation. This is a temporary appearance. But He is so human. And the angels, those two men with them, chapter 19, verse 1 tells us these are angels, though they're called men here. They're so human, they can stand face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Abraham and carry on a conversation. They can sit down under that tree and they can eat food. Isn't that interesting? This has implications, by the way, in other areas of the Scripture about what angels can and can't do, about what God may and may not do. But they're there. This is a theophany. Now, we, we not only know that this is God Himself, we also know this is God the Son. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We know this is God the Son. Your study sheet has some of the references that, that help us clear that up. Two times in John's Gospel, one time in 1 John 4, we read that no man has seen God at any time. No one has seen the Father. We haven't seen Him. So, this isn't the Father. We know that. Now, sometimes you see the Spirit, maybe we could call a variation on the theme of a theophany. Think of Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost when there are tongues of fire over the heads of the disciples and they feel this wind passing through. That is the Spirit. But it's not in a human form like this. Very different. Very different. So we know this is not only God Himself, we know this is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity that's showing up, this divine guest, to Abraham and Sarah's tent. Now, God has come. God has come in this theophany. He's put on human form to interact with Abraham and Sarah to bring good news, good tidings of great joy, right? Because He's telling them That baby I promised you before, you get him. And it's next year. A year from now, when the seasons come back around, I'll come back and visit you. And you will have a little boy. Now, for them, you know, God says you're you're to name him Isaac. You don't get the pleasure of naming this son. I'm naming him. 
And the name I give him is Isaac, which means literally laughter. And when Isaac comes into their life, he literally brings laughter. In fact, you'll see that later in the story after he's born. Everyone will laugh with me, Sarah says, because I've actually had a baby. So God the Son is showing up declaring the birth of Isaac. And isn't that interesting too? God willing, we'll look at Isaac next week as a lens by which we see Jesus. But Isaac is one of the clearest examples in all the Old Testament of the person of Jesus. Here's God the Son declaring the imminent birth of his key type in the Old Testament. Abraham's son, Isaac. This is good news. It's going to bring laughter. Now we know Sarah can't conceive, but God says that's okay because I'm behind this. I'm the one bringing this to pass. So it doesn't depend on your ability, Sarah, at your age, to have children. By the way, we know this is Sarah's challenge, not Abraham's, because Sarah dies, doesn't she, later in this story. And that old Abraham remarries. And he has several more children. So this isn't about Abraham, is it? This is about Sarah. And Sarah says, There's, I, I'm past this. I'm way past this. She's about 89 right now. Way past this. God says, that's okay. Because this birth doesn't depend on your ability. It depends on my promise. In fact, at verse 14, God says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Remember, this is the God who spoke, thinking of Sunday school. By the way, Sunday school... First time I got to sit in this morning, part of the time at least. It's great. If you haven't been coming, I just encourage you to come. The whole, the true you is just a great study. Very encouraging. This is the God that spoke the universe into creation from nothing. He has no problem helping old Sarah get pregnant, okay? So just think about the elements of this story for just a second. So God the Son, in the company of angels is bringing good news of great joy and laughter to Abraham and Sarah in the promise of a miracle son. That's the key elements, isn't it, of this story. Does that sound familiar? It might. If you've got your Bibles again, why don't you turn to Luke's Gospel. We're going to start in Luke 1 and we'll flip around a little bit in Luke. But let me just front load this in Luke. We're going to see in the birth narratives Luke gives us in his Gospel, we'll see these elements. God the Son bringing great joy to Abraham's heirs in the company of angels, when a virgin, someone like Sarah, physically incapable of producing a son, is promised a special miracle son. And by the way, this was a son that God had promised, not like Abraham and Sarah weeks or months earlier, millennia earlier. Those are the same key elements that you'll see in Luke's Gospel around Jesus' birth. I'm going to read from Luke 1, verses 30-37. through 37. This, by the way, you remember Gabriel's already showed up to old Zechariah in the temple and he promised a very old couple like Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. And that son would be John the Baptist. And Zechariah didn't believe that either. He had trouble believing. We're old, she's old, how's this going to happen? But Gabriel says, listen bud, I stand next to God Himself. What I'm telling you is from God, it's going to happen. You're not going to speak for a while, but it's going to happen. Well, that same angel Gabriel goes then north to Galilee to talk to Mary and says, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Like Abraham and Sarah, Mary doesn't get to pick the name. God picks the name, Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, Mary is not reproved for her question. She apparently believes the promise. She's just wondering, how's it going to work? But we hear shades of Sarah's question, don't we? How will this thing work? How will this happen? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible to God. So you got the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, telling her that she is going to have, in this case, the son, really in some sense that humanity had been waiting for, since Genesis 3.15, the first clear promise of a Savior. But also from Genesis 12, we know, we looked at this a month or two back, Galatians 3 makes it clear, when God told Abraham, I'm going to bless all the world through you, He meant through Abraham's heir, his key descendant, Jesus Himself. So Gabriel tells Mary, you're going to have the baby that everyone's been waiting for. Think of the... Words from the song, in fact, I think we'll sing it later this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. We're waiting. When He gets here, we rejoice, but we're waiting for that Son of promise. Now the angel says, call Him Jesus. Remember back... To Abraham, you're to call that boy Isaac because why? Because he brings laughter into your life and into the lives of others. So here God says through the angel, you're to call this boy Jesus. Now, Jesus is an anglicized version of the Greek word Jesus, but that comes from the Hebrew. In your Old Testament, it's, it's translated Joshua. And in Hebrew, it would sound something a little bit more like Yehoshua. And so that's two words too, like Theophanies, two words. Yehoshua is two words, and that's Yahweh saves. Jesus means literally Yahweh saves. And just as Isaac's name applied literally to him, Jesus' name applies literally to him. This person is Yahweh, and Yahweh is here to save. This is not a Theophany, though. This is not a temporary appearance. This is God taking on fully our humanity, not losing His deity in any way, but also taking on fully our humanity in the Incarnation. Call Him Jesus because Yahweh saves. And that's who He is, and that's what He's going to do. Now, when Mary asks that question, how's it going to happen? Because I'm a virgin and this thing, this doesn't happen. How's it going to happen? The angel speaks in words that are almost an echo of God's words in Genesis 18. Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. Mary, not only will you get pregnant a virgin, but old Elizabeth, just like old Sarah, she's going to get pregnant too. She is pregnant. And it's because it doesn't depend on your ability, it depends on God's ability and God's promise. And then in Genesis 18.14, it was said, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Here, nothing is impossible with God.
Nothing is impossible with God. Turn to Luke 2. Read verse 8 through 14. We don't need to read the whole passage to get the, the key point, but it's such a lovely Christmas passage that it just seems wrong not to read it. Luke 2, 8 through 14. Jesus and Mary, they've gone down to Bethlehem. They've had that little baby of promise. Jesus is there in the manger. And in the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is well pleased. Not only do you have Yahweh showing up, Gabriel there announces His arrival, but once He's come, you have the angels showing up with Yahweh again, just like Genesis 18. It's, it's point for point. It's type and antitype. It's promise and it's fulfillment. And if you get nothing else out of this morning, let me say this. I hope that even if you don't walk away with a list of application points to make, that when you see how finely woven not only God's Word is, but the way He has sovereignly and providentially been at work in history, that it just gives you a renewed sense of confidence God really is in control. And He really does know what's going on. And not only has He been behind the scenes in all these lives, weaving all these things together, they're making decisions in their space and time. You know, their story is real just like yours and mine is today. And yet these stories show us that, wow, God has all the key points of Jesus' incarnation. They're laid back there in Genesis 18. So that after He's come, we can look back and we can say with full confidence, God was always after this. No surprises. Everything's on schedule. And if God's doing that in the big things, guys, that go on in the world around us, He's doing it in our life too. We can have confidence in the God of Genesis 18 and Luke's Gospel. So if you feel like things in my life feel a little out of control, that's okay. If you say I feel like I'm in over my head, then I say that's okay too. Because this is the God with whom we have to do. He is sovereignly, providentially overseeing all things. And if you're a believer in His Son Jesus, He says, I take everything that comes into your life, whether it's good or bad on its own, and I shake it up and I turn it around so it's for your blessing and my glory. So this excites me. I love the Bible just for the theology because I see how cool my dad is and how tightly woven not only the text of the Scriptures are, but how sovereignly God is at work all along the way. That's exciting. All on its own. Now, back to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, therefore, is a lovely story. It's a lovely foreshadowing of Luke's account of the Incarnation. And we see point and counterpoint how God was very meticulous about setting this whole thing up. So God arrives on the scene with the message, good news, great joy, to Abraham and Sarah and everyone who knows them. This is great. We could stop right there and we'd have a lovely Christmas story, wouldn't we? But I want to press on just a little bit further into Genesis 18. 
So God has shown up. Here's the good news of great joy. When he arrives, fellowships with them, eats with them. But then as he turns to leave, he brings up an entirely different subject. Entirely different. So back in Genesis 18 again, let's pick up at verse 16. God and the angels have feasted there, courtesy of Abraham. They've had their conversation and God gets up with the angels to leave. The men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God says basically to himself, he lets us in on his thoughts, he says, Abe's my man on earth, and I want him to know what I'm like and what righteousness and justice look like. Abraham knows my mercy and my grace. I've just promised him that miracle baby. But there's more Abraham as my key representative on the earth needs to know about me. So I'm not going to hide from him the other reason that I've come down here. I'm going to tell him what I'm up to. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So, good news of great joy initially to Abraham and Sarah. And that's the Christmas narrative, isn't it? The incarnation is promised and is coming. And God turns around to leave and he, he brings up this thing entirely out of left field, right? Life and blessing. Isaac's coming. Laughter's coming into your life. And then he turns around and says, you know, I should tell Abraham what I am about to do, by the way. When I leave this happy fellowship we've had, I'm going to do something else entirely different. And I'll, I'll, I need to tell Abraham about it. Now, the rest of chapter 18, and if you've read this, you know, it's a great, it's, it's a great passage on prayer. It's, you see Abraham appealing to God in prayer based on God's character. So Abraham now understands God has come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The God who's just promised life to us in Isaac has just told me he's going down to verify the facts and then destroy everyone in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, one, Abraham knows Lot, nephew Lot and his family. They're down there. And so you can imagine his mind is reeling. He's just been told, I get a son, everything's cool. Life is great on one hand. And my nephew and his family are in the place that God is about to destroy. And so Abraham says, uh, Lord, I think he's scrambling in his mind. And he says, uh, Lord, you know, uh, you wouldn't surely destroy the righteous with the wicked because you're the God of all the earth and you've got to do justly. And he said, you know, Lord, maybe if there were even 50 people there, wouldn't you spare them, the whole place for them? And God says, Abraham, absolutely. If there are 50 righteous down there, I'll spare all the wicked for the sake of those 50 righteous. Now, I think Abraham was overreaching in that first number. I think he's, he's spinning, he's reeling, and he puts out a number that as he's thinking about it, he's thinking, I, I know what those people are like down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. 50 might be a stretch. And so... 
he starts whittling it down. You know, I, I better get down to a safer number. And so, of course, that's the back and forth between Abraham and God in prayer. And to every request, Yahweh says, sure, Abe, no problem. 30, 40, 30, 20, 10, absolutely not a problem. Now, you know at 10, I'm sure Abraham's thinking this. 10, they're safe. Because, okay, Lot and his wife, they got to be okay. They've got two daughters, I'm sure they're okay. And they're engaged to be married, so their guys have got to be okay, right? So that'd be six. I mean, surely four more in two cities. Got to be a given, right? Of course, yeah. No, that was a stretch too, wasn't it? So the angels go down in Genesis 19, and of course they verify all the facts. The place is as bad as tales told. And so if you turn to 19, this is what happens. Verse 23, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. God's not going to destroy Lot and his family. He tells them, get out. I'll hold judgment until you're gone. Sun had risen over the earth, Lot came to Zoar, that's a place of safety. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So here in one trip, you've got God the Son calling forth a son for an old couple, and you've got God the Son calling forth fire from heaven on the wicked. Same trip. This theophany does both. Some people say, uh, you know, probably wasn't a real Sodom. Um, I was reading a biblical or archaeology review uh, article just recently. Stephen Collins, I believe, happens to be a Christian. He says, I think I've located the city of Sodom on the north end of the Dead Sea, not the south end. And among other reasons, there's a lot of reasons why he thinks this very sound reasoning. But one of the things is, he says, we know this city was destroyed in a fire. Because we've got glass particles here that they can't be formed unless there's at least 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit heat here. And that's what we've got in this place. This place was consumed in a fire hotter than fire normally burns. And I think he says, this is where I think Tel El Haman, just on the plains north of the Dead Sea, he says, I think this is the place. Some people want to minimize that God would or could have or did destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But guys, when you get to 2 Peter, God uses this very act right here in Genesis 19 as one of the key proofs that He will do two things. He will preserve the righteous and He will judge the wicked. Sodom is one of God's key examples of that. So this same visit, this theophany, brings about two very, very disparate acts. One is the son of promise and the other is death by God's judgment. God is the one who gives life, and then He's the one who takes it away. Now when we think, flip back to Luke's Gospel if you'd like now, when we think of perhaps God in the Old Testament, and we say, well, God seems a bit harsher perhaps in some of His ways or judgments in the Old Testament. Surely the story of the incarnation, the Christmas story, surely they lack any similar theme, right? And then I say, well, actually, no, they don't. So flip forward into Luke's Gospel again. Luke chapter 2, verse 34. If you remember, little Jewish boys had to be presented to God, dedicated to God after their birth at the temple. And Joseph and Mary 
They're God-fearing Jews. And so they take little baby Jesus, Yehoshua, up to the temple to dedicate him to Yahweh. And while they're there, they have a couple interesting meetings. And one of those meetings was with a very old man named Simeon. And we know in this text that God had told Simeon somehow very clearly, Simeon, you won't die before you see my Messiah. You're going to live to see him. And when Simeon sees Jesus held by Mary and Joseph there in the temple courts, he knows, somehow God tells him, that's him. He's the one. This is the Messiah. And Simeon, verse 34, blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child, this one, is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Simeon says again, This one is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Because of this little boy's presence, some in Israel are going to rise. They'll be delivered. They will be preserved. They will be saved. But because of this boy's presence, others in Israel are going to fall. They will not be preserved. They will not be saved. They will fall through judgment. And then he also says, this one is going to galvanize opposition. He is a sign to be opposed. Jesus, this this person that we want to bring love and peace and unity and harmony, Simeon says, well, actually, he's going to galvanize opposition to God. That Jesus will become in his person the one that not only brings some closer to God, he will be the element, if you will, the dynamic that others will galvanize against God because of Him. This is when Jesus is a little boy, eight days old there in the temple. This is part of Jesus' birth narrative. So on one hand, you go back to verse 14 of chapter 2. Depending on your translation, this reads a little differently, but glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is well pleased. That gets translated a little differently in some translations in a way that makes it sound like God's at peace now with all the earth. That's not what it says. I'm reading from New American Standard, a better translation, frankly, than some of the others. Uh, Peace among men with whom He is well pleased. Simeon makes it clear. John the Baptist will in a minute. Jesus will later. That Christ divides men. And that picture back in Genesis 18, Jesus comes and some are saved. And Jesus comes, God the Son in the Theophany, and some are judged. That's exactly what the Incarnation is about as well. Luke 3.17, Jesus' relative, John the Baptist, grows up and comes on the scene. And you remember in the words of Isaiah, John the Baptist is preparing the way of Yahweh, preparing the way of the Lord. That was his mission. And he's not sure who Jesus is yet. But he says, when Messiah comes, the one I'm preparing for, he says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we don't do these things this these way this day, but if you went back there, when you harvested your crop, your barley or your wheat, you, you cut the sheaves, you let it dry, you cut off the, the heads of grain, and you took those heads of grain up to a hilltop. And if you had an animal, you'd have him hitched to what was called a sled, 
and the animal doesn't sound very hygienic, would trample over your grain, the food you're going to eat, carry that sled over, and it would break up the husks, the shells from the grain underneath it. Then you would take a shovel or a fork and you'd throw that mix up in the air. And because it's on a hilltop, that's why they're there, there's usually a breeze. And so the breeze would blow the lighter chaff a little distance and the heavier grain would drop straight down. John the Baptist said, the Messiah, when He comes, He's like a farmer up on the hilltop doing this to His grain. And He says the grain, the thing He's after, it gets brought in to the barn. It's saved. It's preserved. It's kept. But the chaff, the wind, blows it away. And it's collected in piles and then it's burned. And you see exactly the same themes and imagery from Genesis 18. Some are saved. Some get life. Some are judged in fire. It's exactly the same imagery. John says that's what Messiah is bringing. Some, because of Jesus, are going to be grain gathered into the barn and kept and preserved and saved. They're going to rise. Simeon's word. Other Simeon's words, they're going to fall. They will be like chaff. This goes right back, by the way, to Psalm 1, the second half of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, it's the wind, it drives it away. The angel of the Lord driving it away. Here, John says it's fire. It's consumed by fire. If you go further into Luke 12, Jesus says, verses 49-53, You know, the world has imagery of Jesus oftentimes, uh, Jesus meek and mild. And, And Jesus said He was meek and mild. And He is. And we love that about Him. But this is like the steel hand and the velvet glove. Jesus is more than meek and mild. And He did come to seek and to save that which was lost. But guys, He also came as a judge. And that's what you see Jesus saying here in Luke 12. He said in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. That's Genesis 18. He's done that before. God the Son has done that before. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. God is not only a God who saves, but He's a God who judges because He must. And while Isaiah also says of God's judgment, he says it's His work, His strange work. It's not what is most typical of Him. Nevertheless, Jesus is fully just and righteous. And He said that He is, in a sense, He he can't wait to bring judgment because it's righteousness demonstrated and executed. And Jesus says, and that is a good thing. And that is something that He must do and He will do. He says, do you suppose that I've come to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather a division. You know, if you think back to Luke 2 and we say, well, He's come to bring peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And we say, well, yes, but that's limited. Because He also says He's come to divide the earth. Back to Simeon's word. He galvanizes opposition. And Jesus says from now, based on Him, families will be divided within their their own group. Fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, what will they be divided over? It will be over Jesus. 
So he says, actually, in the big scope right now, I haven't come to bring peace. I bring division. I divide one person from another because I'm the dividing mark. I'm the one who gives life. I'm the one who judges. I'm the one who brings the grain in. I'm the one who burns the chaff. I am the one, Jesus says, through whom all of mankind is divided. They either belong to God or they don't. They're either like Abraham and Sarah, getting the promise getting the child, getting laughter, or they're like Sodom and Gomorrah, getting God's righteous judgment, typically in fire. This is what I mean. This, is, this includes the Christmas narrative, doesn't it? But because you're talking about the incarnation, you're talking about why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost, but He also came as one who would galvanize opposition to God, the ultimate one who would judge Jesus is a Savior, but He's also a judge, just like Genesis 18. In John 5, I think it's verse 22, Jesus says, God the Father doesn't judge anyone. God the Father has given me all judgment. And then you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 20, and when it says this earth age is over, and the earth, every, everything here is done, and it says the dead of all the ages, all those who have ever lived on the earth who aren't grain who haven't trusted in God's Messiah and been saved, they all stand before a throne, God's throne. It's God the Son they stand before. And again, Genesis 18, Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, they stand before what's called a great white throne. God the Son, Jesus sits on it, and everyone there is judged. And it says they're judged by books. That's the deeds of their life. It says the book of life is brought out, and they're shown your, your name is not in this book. You don't have life. And what is their end? And it says those whose names were not written in the book of life were consigned to the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. This is tough stuff in Christmas season. But you see the same Genesis 18, that's Revelation 20. We're saved or we're lost. God's judgment is in the form of fire. This is all absolutely consistent. Same thing. Charles Wesley wrote, tons of hymns. I want to read you two stanzas from one called Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. This isn't about the incarnation, by the way. This is about the second coming. You know, Daniel's language. Jesus says, when you see me the next time, you'll see me coming on the clouds of glory. So Wesley writes, Lo, He Come with Clouds Descending once for our salvation slain, past tense, thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of His train. Alleluia, alleluia, Christ the Lord returns to reign. These are the saved. This is the wheat. This is Abraham and Sarah. And when Jesus is coming back on the clouds of glory, the thousands attending in the myriads of myriads, they're shouting hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus has finally come back to take up His reign on the earth. We're thrilled. Stanza 2 is a little different. Every eye shall now behold Him robed in dreadful majesty. Dreadful. Those who set at naught, those who valued Him as nothing in the incarnation, those who set at naught and sold Him, pierced and nailed Him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, Wailing shall their true Messiah see. 
You see, for one group, Jesus' return is hallelujah, praise the Lord, bring it on. For the other, it's, it's uh, trembling. It's fear. In the words of Isaiah, and again in Revelation, we see the Lamb coming and we say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the One who's coming. Totally different refrain. Which side of Christ do they stand on? Because it's the Christmas season and we want cheeriness, this is not a very cheery message, is it? It's cheery on one hand and not on the other. It's important to remember that God and Jesus are not like Santa Claus. You know, the jolly elf. It's all cheer and goodwill and it's all good things to eat. By the way, which God is cheer and goodwill and good things to eat, isn't He? But He's not the cherubic elf. He's this dreadful, fearful, sovereign, king, eternally existent God with whom we have to do. And for all of us, He is one of two things. He is either our Savior or He is our judge. There's no way around it. There's no other options. This Jesus, this God theophany in Genesis 18, this incarnate God the Son in Jesus, He's either our Savior or He's our judge. There's no other ground left for us. If we choose not to meet Jesus as Savior, we have chosen de facto to meet Him as our judge. And judge us He will. In fact, He can do no other. Be careful of trivializing Jesus and the Incarnation during the Christmas season. Don't trivialize who came to earth or why. He did come to seek and to save that which was lost, and that's us. But He also came to be a sign that would be opposed by those who don't want God to rule over us. His coming foretold both salvation and deliverance and judgment as well. That's all in the Incarnation. The so what? What are the takeaways? This series has been hard for me, frankly. I told my wife yesterday, uh, I haven't talked more about hell in my life than teaching through this series on Jesus because it's where it takes you. Because Jesus, the incarnation, is all about God sending someone to save us and you've got to be saved from something if you need a Savior. And what we're saved from is our own sin and the death that we already have. So it's serious business. And I realize I've been thinking a lot about hell because of that. And you just can't take away Jesus' person in the incarnation from the reason He came to save us. That His person and His work are intimately tied together. To talk about the incarnation is to talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Deliverance and judgment. You simply can't get away from it. So my takeaways as I think of this If you're saved, if you know I've trusted Jesus and I know absolutely if I died this moment, I'm going to heaven forever, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus. Guys, I just say this, fearful, trembling, worship, thanks, thank you Jesus for taking my sin, thank you that I'm not going to the lake of fire forever to suffer for my guiltiness, it's a fearful thing. When I think about what I'm saved from, it's uh, overwhelming. If you're a Christian, thank God fearfully, wonderfully, full throats when we worship. By the way, this is one of the reasons when we offer God puny, pathetic worship, what an insult. Do you know what I mean? 
what Jesus has saved us from, and we just sort of mouth words of praise or worship, it's like, think about this. He is a dread, sovereign judge, and you don't have to meet Him as your judge. Thank God this Christmas season, if you know Christ. If you don't know absolutely that if you died today, you'd pass into glorious presence of Jesus. I know that God speaks to people over time in different ways. And usually our conversion is a process in which we hear the gospel, and we take some of that in, we hear some more, and we take some of that in. But I would just say, if you hear God speaking to you today in this message, and you're not sure that you're going to heaven when you die, don't put it off. Hebrews says, if today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't put that off. You may not have another day. You go back to Genesis 18. Do you think those people in Sodom and Gomorrah on that last day when the sun rose, do you think they knew that was their last day? They had no idea. Matter of fact, Lot's would-be sons-in-law, engaged but not yet married, when Lot tells them, hey guys, you've got to get out of this place. God's going to overthrow it. Do you remember what the text says about them? This is one of the, it's sort of one of the most piercing texts in the Bible for me. It says they thought he was joking. Now they're going to they're going to be dead in hours and they think it's a joke and friends the world thinks the incarnation the crucifixion the resurrection is a joke. We don't know none of us are promised another day. And that's why I just say if you feel God tugging on your heart this morning don't don't put that off. You'll meet Jesus. You can meet Jesus today as your savior. You don't do anything but receive the gift. Jesus has done all the work for us. We don't bring anything to our salvation except our sin and our need. And Jesus says, I'll cover that. I've covered that for you. And you just receive the gift of eternal life He offers us. And you leave the city of destruction with Lot. And you're saved gloriously and forever. If you don't know that, you can know that today. Lord God, I thank You that Jesus died for my sins. I receive that gift today. Save me and make me Your own. Amen. And He'll make you His own. And you'll be saved. Redeem the season. If you send Christmas cards, don't send the cheesy holiday greetings. Can I just say, what are holiday greetings worth? We're Christians. We know that heaven and hell are on the line. If you send Christmas cards, send something with some content about Christ and about what's at stake. About why there's a Christmas season in the first place. Brent mentioned this in announcements. Invite people to church, and especially Christmas Eve service. Some people still in our culture, if they wouldn't go to church on any other occasion, they might go on Christmas or Easter. So take advantage of that. Christmas Eve has become for me sort of my favorite service of all the year. It's just a delightful, lovely time. The lights will be down low. There will be a lot of musicians up front here. You'll come in and we'll simply read Scripture texts. It's been great. I think this is our ninth annual And we'll just read about creation and the fall through those passages, the promise and the coming of Jesus, and we'll sing Christmas hymns in between each one. There'll be a short devotional. You'll get here at 6.30. You'll leave at 7.30. But it's a great time. And you know, the Spirit is present in the meeting of the saints of God. And not only do people come in and they hear the truth of the Scriptures, but the Holy Spirit is present and He's present to convict and to help them see what the truth is. So invite your friends or relatives, your neighbors who don't know Christ, invite them to church. Lord, who could I invite? Don't worry about freaking them out. Just invite them anyway.
I invited a young guy to church this last week. I gave him my card. I said, hey, I'd love to have you at church. And he says, I'll give that to my wife. And I said, no, but you could come too. Why don't you come? Invite someone to church. Christmas Eve is a great time to do that. And also talk about Christ and Christmas. You'll have opportunity because we're talking about Christmas. Christ's name is in there, isn't it? It was called Christ's Mass back in our Roman Catholic days, right? Christ's Mass. Christmas is about Christ. We can bring Him up. He's already in the words. He's already in the air. We can bring Him up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tough, convicting, compelling passage for me. Uh, Jesus shows up. You get a promise, you get a son, you get life on one hand. And He turns around and you get death through judgment on the other. You know, which, which do you want? You know, which, which do we want? This is a pretty, pretty easy choice for me. There's no, there is no Christmas without Christ. And guys, there's no joy. There's no laughter. Ultimately, there's no good cheer without Jesus. That's what this is about. I just think we need to be proactive in this Christmas season to focus on the great salvation we have in Jesus and then to invite others into that same relationship, not chaff blown away and consumed by fire, but grain brought into God's house, brought into His place, saved and preserved by Jesus. Father, we thank You that You took it upon Yourself and the person of Your Son to Redeem us. Lord, we recognize in You a dread sovereign and a just and righteous judge. And we thank You, Lord, that by Jesus' doing and by the work of the Spirit through faith in our Redeemer, we who call on Jesus' name now have already passed out of judgment and into life. And Lord, I just pray for any here, Your Spirit, like the wind in John 4, is blowing through their life, bringing them to repentance and faith in Your Son. And God in heaven, would you help us to worship you fully and appropriately as you deserve, as, as the awesome true God of the universe on one hand, and as the one who humbled himself to come down and partake of our humanity and die on a cross for our sins and rise gloriously from the grave and offer to us in your name life eternal. And Jesus, we take you up on that again today. Lord, to your praise, to your honor, to your glory. Amen.